Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Hope Church. My name is Tom O'Connell. I serve here at Hope as one of the pastors, and I believe we all love stories, don't we? Uh, whether it's a good book, a good movie, a good TV show, uh, we love hearing stories. And I want to introduce you to one of my friends. Uh, this is Dan Experience. Uh, Dan is going to share with you a little bit of his story, uh, a little bit of his faith journey. Uh, he's going to share with you what we like to say here at Hope, uh, his story of hope. So would you welcome Dan uh, this morning? Thank you. Um, up until about a year ago, I was a lifelong atheist. And my atheism was, was kind of well-founded. It made sense that I was an atheist. So I kind of want to share my story. Um, when I was a kid, my parents were divorced. And they were divorced before I ever remember them being together. I was super young. Um, and I lived with my mom, and there was no religion in our house. We didn't go to church or read the Bible or anything like that. And I saw my dad on the weekends, and my dad was the only Christian presence that I had in my life. The problem was he also suffered from pretty severe mental illness. Uh, he was a paranoid schizophrenic, and he had delusions that people were following him, uh, trying to hurt him. And, and since he was a Christian, this was all kind of presented through the lens of Satan trying to take down one of God's soldiers. Um, and so weekends could be kind of a scary time for me. I have memories of my sister and I in the car with my dad and him going like 60 miles an hour, weaving through residential neighborhoods, trying to escape from some perceived threat. Um, and I also, th this isn't my story to share publicly, so I'm not going to get into the, the specifics, but I found out later that there had also been sexual misconduct perpetrated by my father. And so th this was my only exposure to Christianity. So it kind of formed my worldview that Christians are crazy, Christians are bad people. Um, and I also had other problems at home with my mom. Um, I, I, I couldn't fathom that there was a God watching out, caring about me. Um, in, in my teens, at about 14, I, I got pretty heavy into drinking and, and doing drugs. Uh, suffered from anxiety and depression and, and lived for, for years with suicidal thoughts. Eventually, I, I kind of got my life together. Uh, I was still an atheist in my late 20s, but I wasn't as obnoxious about it as I used to be. Like in high school, I, would, I was the atheist that would pick the arguments with all the Christian kids and try to prove them wrong. Uh, so I was still an atheist in my late 20s, but I wasn't that way about it. Um, and about 10 years ago, um, a girl got hired at the place that I work at, and I immediately had a crush on her. And I also found out that she was a Christian, so I kind of figured, I'm a drunk mess of an atheist, this isn't going to work out. Um, the good news is she's my girlfriend now. Uh, <laughs> And if anybody doesn't believe in miracles, you need to look at my girlfriend compared to me. I deserve to be with a girl that looks like Steve Buscemi. Um, and my girlfriend is gorgeous. But I'm not going to go through the entire step-by-step -step of the 10 years of us becoming friends. But we did become friends. And it kind of challenged my view of Christianity because she wasn't crazy. She wasn't a bad person. And so we would have discussions with each other, me as an atheist and her as a Christian, and eventually I asked her if I could go to church with her. Uh, I was curious where her beliefs came from and, and why she wasn't crazy. Um, and I had a crush on her. I wanted to spend time outside of work 
with her. Um, but slowly over the f- a few months of coming to Hope Church, it, it kind of, I started to realize that God had been at work in my life. Um, given my childhood, my poor decisions, I mean, I should either be dead or in jail. I, I shouldn't be thriving the way that I am. And I want to share a story of uh, exactly a year ago, last Easter, uh, I was supposed to go to a church service with my now girlfriend and her parents, and I was completely sidelined with anxiety uh, to the point that I literally couldn't leave the house. Um, And now, looking back over the past year, I've accepted Jesus into my life. I I see what he has done for me. Um, I've I've been baptized, uh, and I am, after the previous service, a couple came up to me and, and said that they were worried because their, their children are now identifying as atheists. And I, I told them, my story is proof that nobody is beyond God. God can reach all of us. So, thank you. What do you like about Easter? Celebrate with your family. Easter hunting for eggs. You get to open them and there's stuff in there. Money and grass. Lots of candy. What does the Easter bunny do? Hops. He hides the eggs. He's a person that's dressed up in a costume. Who is Jesus? Jesus is like a person God. He is God's son. What does Jesus look like? Long brown hair and a brown beard. And he's got like a robe on. He has this belt, like what karate people wear, I think. <laughs> Who are the disciples? Twelve chosen followers of Jesus. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, and Valphius, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, Bartholomew. They're the good guys. What did Jesus teach? How to pray and that God's real. To always love one another when it's hard teaching them about Christmas and Valentine's Day. What kinds of miracles did Jesus do? He turned water into wine. He made five loaves and two fishes spread a long way. He helped people if they were sick. He walked on water. There was a storm and it was all windy and I said, Jesus, Jesus, and then he calmed it down so, so they won't be scared. What would be a really cool miracle for him to do? For me to be a superhero like Batman. Let me ride shark. Fix the government. <laughs> what did they eat at the Last Supper? Bread and like some dipping sauce. Take an egg and french rice. And there's the juice. Some vegetables with chocolate on it. Why did some people not like Jesus? That everybody was calling him king. They didn't believe that he was God's son. They thought he would only hang out with the people who had done no sin, but he helped the sinners because they're the ones who needed help. What did those people do to Jesus? There were swords trying to capture him, whipped him, and put a crown of thorns on his head, and made him carry the cross a long way. Put him on a cross and stabbed him. They hurted his heart. Somebody put him in a tube that had this big rock over it. 
What happened on Sunday morning? He grew from the ground. He rose from the dead. What did the disciples do when they saw Jesus? Very afraid, thought he was a ghost. They saw the scars, they touched him. Jesus, Jesus is alive, come on, love him. They are so happy. How do we follow Jesus? Confess our sins and ask him into our heart by praying. And then he's like in our heart. <laughs> Why did Jesus do all of this? It was all for us because he loves us. He said, I don't want them to be scared and whenever they're hurt, I want to help them. We love you, Jesus. Kids say the best things, don't they? <laughs> I think my favorite part is when they're putting their finger in his side. <laughs> is it really there? <laughs> Let's try it. Maybe you've heard the story of the Sunday school teacher who a few weeks before Easter was getting her class ready for Easter and just asked the question, what does Easter mean, kids? What does the resurrection mean? What do we do? And, and the first little uh, guy in the class shot up his hand and said, well, I think it's when we meet together with friends and family, eat a lot of turkey and watch football. And she said, no, no, I think you're mistaking that for Thanksgiving. And next, te- next uh, child in the class shot up their hand and said, I think it's when we put up the tree and we put gifts under the tree and we give those gifts to friends and family. And again, the teacher said, no, I think you're missing it. I don't think that's it. That's Christmas. Uh, and at this point, the teacher's like, why am I doing this? Like, why do I teach? These kids don't seem to be getting anything. And then another child raises their hand and says, it's when Jesus died on the cross and he was put in the tomb for three days. And the teacher's like, yes, finally one, one gets it. And then the child continued to talk and said, then we all gather around the tomb. And when Jesus comes out, if he sees his shadow, We have six more weeks of winter. (laughs) At which the teacher turned in her resignation and said, I'm I'm done teaching these kids. And, uh, you know, we we laugh at maybe in the video what kids think about Easter and Jesus and the Bible. And and, uh, we might offer as adults um, and middle school, high school students, maybe some different answers. But I think it's safe to say that what we believe about these things today, uh, the reality is in a room this size with this many people here today, what we believe about these things, we're all over the map. Um, There are people here today that believe these things to be true and have been living their lives according to it for some a few years, some for many years. And there's some here today that you honestly don't believe much of it or really any of it. And you're here, uh, a friend invited you, a family member invited you, mom said, you're not getting uh, ham after if you don't come to church today, and that's why you're here. So we all bring uh, different beliefs and, and systems, so faith systems, so to speak, to this place. And we say this a lot here at Hope Church, but we really believe it, that whatever you believe today about these things, whatever faith background or where you're at on your spiritual journey, uh, we want to let you know we are glad you're here. We're thrilled you're here. And I believe we all have some things to learn today about who Jesus is, his life, death, uh, and resurrection. And Easter sometimes can be, we can treat Easter and the resurrection of Jesus uh, sometimes, uh, many ways, like I treat my Christmas lights. And here's what I mean by that. I pull out my Christmas lights one time a year. I put them up on my house. I look at them. Our family looks at them. Our friends look at them. We look at them for a few weeks. 
A few weeks after Christmas, we take them down. If the weather's good, we take them down and we put them away. And we don't think about them again or use them again until next year. And sometimes Easter, the resurrection, can be like that. We gather on Easter Sunday, we think about it, we talk about it, uh, but we kind of, in a way, after a service or after a week goes by, we kind of put it away and then wait till next year, next Easter, and we pull it back out and we think about it. And, and I believe that that's not what God desires for us as we think about the resurrection. I don't think that's what Jesus desires for us. I don't think that's what the, those who wrote uh, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those who wrote some of the letters in the New Testament, I don't think it was the, God's design that we would just think about the resurrection and, and what it means for our lives one day, but this would impact our lives every day. Every day, we would live our lives in light of the empty tomb. And so today, wherever we might be on our faith journey, I believe we all have an opportunity to respond to that. What does it mean to live our lives in light of the empty tomb, of Jesus' life, of his death, of his crucifixion, and of his resurrection? So what we're going to use today to help us grow in that, I need to grow in that, and I hope you have the posture that wants to grow in that, we're going to use a few verses at the end of one of the gospel accounts, the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 16. So if you have a Bible or it's maybe on a, it's an app on one of your devices that you have with you, I know you have multiple devices with you right now at this very moment, um, at, uh, Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to spend just our time for a few moments looking again at a familiar story, looking at the empty tomb, really going back to where we left off on Good Friday. Uh, many of you were here on Good Friday, and we left off at the tomb uh, when Jesus was put inside the tomb. We read from John 19, and today we go back to the tomb, and we start there and learn all God has for us. If you don't have a Bible with you or it's on a device you have with you, the words will be projected on the screen so you can follow along. But Mark chapter 16, um, starting at verse 1, it says this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. They, Mark tells us an important detail that the Sabbath is over, and that's important because when the Sabbath is over, then they could buy what they needed to buy. When the Sabbath was going on, there was a law in the land that you could not buy things on the Sabbath. You could not buy spices that they wanted to buy to anoint Jesus' body. So they had to wait for the Sabbath to be over, and Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, go to buy spices that they, go, they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Let's pause there for a moment. So these three women are making their way back to the tomb, to the place where Jesus' body had been laid. And they're going to anoint it. They're going to put spices uh, on Jesus' body that had been done before uh, when he was, his body was quickly put into the tomb because the Sabbath was nearing. Beginning of the Sabbath was nearing, so they had to quickly get his body into the tomb. So these women are going there. And just one observation I want to make is I want us to just observe and see that the, what these women are going to do and what it means. These women are going to anoint the body of Jesus that they still believe will be in the tomb. 
There isn't a sense here among these women, and these are some of Jesus' followers. These aren't just people that randomly heard about Jesus or kind of caught on at the end, but, but these women have been following him and listening to him and heard his teaching and saw some of the miracles, and they knew kind of who he was, but there's not a sense here as they go to the tomb that he's going to be out of there. We even get the question, who's going to move the stone? It's maybe one of those questions you wonder they thought, should have thought about earlier. Like, Mary, why didn't you think about that when we left the house? You know, like, who's going to... Mary, are you strong enough? Salome, have you been lifting weights? Like, can you, you know, move this? And there's this sense of, we don't, how are we going to move the stone? And really, friends, I just want to make an observation. There's doubt. There's doubt even here among some of Jesus' followers. And I raise that, I, we observe that, we talk about it, we call it out today because for some of you here today, there might be doubt. As you think about the story we're talking about, as you think about even Dan's testimony, as you think about what we're celebrating and singing about and reading about today, some of you might be still like, I just don't know. I think he's still in the tomb. And I just want to, say that to hopefully I hope you understand that doubt is a reality for many of us. It was even a doubt was a reality for some of Jesus' closest followers, even here and even after the resurrection. But it's not where it, it's not where it ends. Their doubt um, doesn't end there. So we pick up in verse four. It says, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, their problem was solved. The stone, which was very large, had been rolled away, it says in verse 4. And then verse 5, after they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, where they, and they were alarmed. So they're like, great, someone already moved the stone for us. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And now they go into the tomb with their spices, thinking they're going to anoint his body. And instead of seeing Jesus' body, they see a young man dressed in white. And we believe this is some angelic being uh, has shown up. And this messenger, this angel, has a message, a specific message for these three women. A specific message for them, for the original readers of Mark, and for us today. The angel could have said any number of things about Jesus. The angel could have said any number of things about what took place. But what we'll observe is the angel said three, offered three specific details about Jesus. And I believe each of these details helps us understand and grow in living in light of the resurrection every day of our lives, not just one day or one weekend a year. So verse 6, it says this, the angel's response, don't be alarmed. They're, they're afraid, they're fearful. Uh, and that is a continual theme throughout Scripture when angels, angelic beings would show up to people. There was obviously alarm, there was fear, but their message to everyone they, they show, that showed up to was, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. And the angel goes on to say, and we'll come back to each of these, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Three specific details about Jesus. First, the angel says you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Now, Jesus, the angel here is not saying or describing the denomination that Jesus was a part of. He's not the Nazarene that goes to the Nazarene church, although we love the Nazarenes. But what, Jesus, what the angel is describing here is the angel says Jesus the Nazarene is that he is saying, he's describing or pinpointing Jesus' address. 
He's saying this is where he lived. He lived in Nazareth. He was a Nazarene. He had an address. He had a home. He had a family. He had a street he grew up with. He had friends that he grew up with. He grew up in a community. He was known. He worked with his father in the carpenter shop. He, he had a life. He, he had an address. If he grew up here in Northeast Ohio, let's say he grew up in Brunswick, the angel would have said that day in the tomb, you're looking for Jesus from Brunswick. He's describing the address, the place on the blue dot in the sky we call earth that Jesus lived, that he inhabited. It's interesting that he says this first before he gets to maybe what we might consider the important information, his death and his resurrection, and we'll get there. But first, he highlights his humanity. He highlights that God took on flesh, that God, when he chose to reveal himself, one of the ways he chose to reveal himself to mankind is in a person. So that when all of us have questions, and we all have questions, what is God like? What would God do in this situation? How would God respond to this person? We, we take those questions and we can look at how Jesus lived. In the person of Jesus, we see God. He reveals who God is. And he not only reveals who God is, but he also provides, friends, for you and I, an example of how, what does it look like to live as a human? What does it look like to live a life, to love people well, to care for people, to treat people kindly, to help people, to heal the sick, to take care of the marginalized? What does it look like to be human? We look to the example of Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. We learn about who God is and we learn how to live our lives from his example. How you and I live our lives today, friends, matters. It matters. Jesus lived on this earth. The angel says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. That's not all what he says in verse 6. Again, it says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. So here's the second detail. Jesus who was crucified. The angel's words are interesting to me. He just doesn't say Jesus died. He could have said that, and in a way, he kind of does. But the angel more describes the mode of his death. He was crucified. Crucifixion was a mode, a means of death. He just doesn't say he died. In this culture, in this first century culture, crucifixion was really, it, it was reserved primarily, it happened outside of this sometimes, but primarily crucifixion, dying on a cross, was reserved for slaves and rebels. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but some would say they perfected it. It became an art form for them. And the reason they used crucifixion for specifically slaves and rebels, those who are trying to get a movement, an uprising to revolt against their leadership, their power structures, their people, the reason they would take, use the mode of crucifixion, someone dying on a cross, was they would humiliate people. There would be so much shame as someone who's hung naked on the cross. And then there was a sense of power that we will stop you. What you're trying to do isn't going to work. 
and they would, they would line people on crosses on the streets as reminders of people that might want to buy into what this rebel or this revolutionary leader is trying to do to say, if you're going to follow them, you're going to end up like them. And the angel says to those women that day at the tomb, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. So the question that maybe comes to mind is what was Jesus' crime? What did he do that was so bad that would cause him to be crucified like a slave or a rebel? You might even say, it's an interesting question to think about because honestly, we think about it, Jesus, we would describe as like the model citizen. I mean, he healed the sick. He took care of the poor. He fed the multitudes. He, he set people free from demonic oppression in their life. He did all the right things. You would think this, he'd be raised, like people just celebrate him. Look how much good he's doing for our community. But instead, he was crucified. So why? What was his crime? His crime, so to speak. There's a lot of different reasons or answers we can give to this, why he was crucified. But just one today. I want to just highlight one. I believe his crime, so to speak, was his message. Jesus, throughout his life on earth, continually announced over and over and over again in different ways that he not only came, but with him coming, he brought the kingdom of God with him. And we hear the kingdom of God, we think about it, it, we, it might lose its power maybe on us a number of years later. But when Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is near, it's here, you can experience it today. I brought it with me. That is a highly politically charged statement. Because what he is saying is that I am here with a different kingdom. It's going to come against your kingdom. And he's talking about, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the rule and reign of God. He's talking about, in a way, the government of God, the arrangement of, a, of the world of society that comes from God. He's saying this reality is within your reach today. And we even see it, not just in what he said, but what he did. How do we see the kingdom of God on display? We see people who are, who are oppressed by, by demonic powers set free. We see people, Jesus bringing together people that shouldn't be together. He's bringing together people that should not be in the same room or were never in the same room. He's spending time with people that many religious in that day never spent time with. These are all demonstrations of his kingdom. Just one example of him bringing together people that shouldn't be together, even on his, we might call his team, his disciples. There was two men on his team that were on polar opposites of their pers with their perspective of the government. There was one on his team who worked for the government. And there was one on his team that wanted to overthrow the government. And he brought them together on the same team. We see demonstration after demonstration after demonstration of the kingdom of God. The king, this new reality, this new way of ordering life and relationships. And that didn't sit well with those in charge that continually butted up against the, those in power and authority in that day and time. So what do you do when there's a rebel who's trying to take over, so to speak, or bring in a new government or bring in a new kingdom? You crucify him. You crucify him. You humiliate him. And in doing so, you're saying, we're in charge and you're not going to win.
but little do they know what they're doing. One pastor said about the cross, about the crucifixion of Jesus, he said, the cross is both the awful crescendo of human sin. Think about it. God in the flesh, crucified. But at the same time, it is the apex of divine grace. Human sin and divine grace met together in the cross met together in the crucifixion of Jesus. He goes on to say, the cross is beautiful. As, even though it's so ugly and horrific, it is beautiful because it is the place where sin is absorbed, forgiven, and transformed into reconciliation. We look at what happened in the first century, and obviously these, these, these men and women, these humans are missing the mark. They're not living the way God wants them to live, so much so that they put Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. And here, thousands of years later, we as human beings, we miss the mark, all of us, myself included. And today, we can have confidence that as Jesus hung on the cross that day, he took, he absorbed our sin all of our sin, my sin, your sin, and transformed it into forgiveness and now we can be reconciled to God. Jesus, who was crucified, now opens the door for us to live the life he wants us to live. The third and last detail, again of verse six, says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. We'll come back to that in a moment. He is going on ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Here's the third detail. The, the angel says to those, the women that day at the tomb, Jesus has risen. He's no longer here. The angel says, look, see the place where they laid him. See, he, he was laid right here. This was the place. You could see the cloth. You could see what he was wrapped in. This is the place. The tomb is empty. It's interesting. I don't know about you, but there's something in me and maybe in us that wants more detail about the resurrection. Like, how did it happen? When did it happen? What form? Like, what was it like? And it's interesting that the gospel writers, they, they, they really just basically describe what has already happened. They say he has risen. The tomb's empty. They don't give us all the details. And, and again, try to put ourselves in their shoes as they're writing these gospel accounts, as they're writing these stories decades later. Their minds just don't even have the framework. To, to a human being, was in, a person was in the tomb for three days and then was alive. How do you try to even describe that? It's in some ways like me trying to describe to my parents what Skype is. <laughs> they have no framework for how this works. I know some, like you just get it and you understand technical, but like my, my dad still uses a flip phone and, and text, like you don't text, you know, you know, like so to try to help explain through a phone call, how do I set up Skype on my computer and where's the microphone? Where's the camera? I can't see you. And I'm, oh, it is just crazy to try to explain and just, they don't have a framework. It's like even what my kids try to explain to me some social media platforms that I just, I just don't get. I don't have the framework for it. I don't have the language for it. It's the same way with the resurrection. The, the gospel writers just say he has risen. He's not here. 
And it's interesting that when Mark records his account, he doesn't get into the, when he talks about Jesus being risen, he doesn't get into the theological significance of it, what it means that the tomb is empty and, and all the ramifications, implications of the, of the tomb being empty. What Mark moves to and encourages the women to move to is to go and tell. It says in verse 7, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going on ahead of you into Galilee. So he's in, right now they're in Jerusalem. He's going north. He's going into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The idea conveyed there, the, the phrase, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, isn't just he's going to a geographic location, although he is. There's more to it. The sense there in the text is that he's going on ahead of you and you are to follow in his footsteps. You are to continue following him, being led by him. I believe that day as the women went to the tomb, there was a sense of ending for them in their minds. This is it. This is probably going to be the last day we will actually see Jesus' body. They were going to anoint him, put the stone back, and walk away. And that would have been it. It would have been done. But what these women learned that day is that the empty tomb, this place of endings and a place of pain and a place of suffering, is not the end of the story. But there's more to it. There's more unfolding. And Jesus is inviting these women and he's inviting you and I here thousands of years later to say, will we go on to, to Galilee to follow him? Will we follow in his footsteps? Will we go and tell? It's not the end of the story. There's more unfolding. It's interesting how this story ends in verse 8. It says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out from went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. End of the gospel. I know if you have a, a Bible in front of you, there, there's a little footnote about the verses 9 through 20, and we're not going to get into all of that, but basically to understand that the earliest manuscripts of Mark end at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It leaves more questions than answers, doesn't it? Like, wait, what? That's it? Period? No more? It maybe feels like, in a way, an episode of This Is Us. Like, is, what, what? What's happening? I didn't, who, you, know, you didn't tie it all up. And the question is, did Mark do that on purpose? Was it a mistake? And I believe it was intentional on Mark's part to end the way he ended and here's why. Let me try to illustrate it by a story. So growing up, I didn't read a lot of book series. Um, read more now than I probably ever have. Uh, but the book series that I would always kind of gravitate towards in our school library was the series entitled Choose Your Own Adventure. Some of you maybe read that series of books. And if you haven't, basically what happened in the books was you would read and you'd get to a certain point at different chapters and you got to make the decision, where do I go from here? Do I read the next chapter or do I jump ahead to a couple chapters? If it was about the searching for, you know, Bigfoot, do I go here, do I go to the mountain or do I go to the cave? And you got to choose what you did. You were invited into the book to make a decision. Which way am I going to go? And I believe today, friends, as we look at this story, 
I think what Mark is doing is very intentional. He's saying, what will be my response and your response today? What will be our response today? He, inv- he ends this way to invite you and I into the story to say, what will I do? In light of Jesus the Nazarene, the one who's been crucified in the empty tomb, what will I do today? How will I step into this story? How will I live for him? What will be my response today? And I want to just offer three, and then we'll wrap up. In your seat pocket or on the floor, if you're sitting in one of the front rows or back rows, there's these little cards. And I just want to highlight three responses to this story today. First, some of us, the response might be to follow. It might be to follow. Like the women, Mary, Mary and Salome, to go and tell, to go tell the disciples, he's going on ahead of you to Jerusalem to follow his example, to follow his lead. As we watched him live his life and learn from him to say, I want to live the way he lived. I want to follow his example. I want to live in love in such a way that people feel loved and they feel valued and people find hope and through God working through us. And I want to let you know, friends, that over the next several months, You and I, if you come on Sunday mornings, we're going to go back to the beginning of the book of Mark and we're going to learn from the example of Jesus. So today we're starting Mark at the end. Mark 16. Next week we're in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to learn from his example of what does it look like to live and to love? What does it look like to see his kingdom, the rule and reign of God, come more and more in our lives, in in our relationships? It's interesting to me, an important detail that Mark records for us in verse 7, is that, but go and tell, he says to the women, his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Peter was the disciple who, just before Jesus' uh, crucifixion, denied him three times. He is approached and and a person says, aren't you one of his followers? And three times, Peter says, I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times, Peter says that. You know where Mark got his account of what he records for us in Mark? From Peter. Peter, the one who said, I don't know him. So when Mark was writing his gospel account, Peter told Mark, had to tell Mark, Mark, Write this down. I who once denied him. God, Jesus, or the angel said to these women, make sure you tell Peter. I'm not done with Peter. And I wonder today, maybe some of you, you haven't necessarily verbally like said, I deny Christ, but maybe with your life, you said, I don't really know him. And today you're like, can God really use me because of what I've done? And friends, I want to let you know God's grace is sufficient. His grace covers a multitude of what we've done, our, sin, our sins. And like Peter, he says to you, I want, to wor- I want you to follow me. And even just one other word here, one other observation before we get into the other two responses. As, we, as those women went to the tomb that day, they realized the tomb wasn't the end of the story. There was more to be done. And this past year... Um, If you come to Hope Church on a regular basis, if you're part of us, part of our church community, you know this past year has not been the easiest for a lot of different reasons. I'm not going to go into all of them. But today, that was very encouraging to me, and I hope to you, to hear that the story's not done. 
The story's not done. God is still at work. He's still active and he invites you and I to follow him. So maybe for some of you, it's checking that box saying, I want to follow. Maybe for some of you, it's fear. You say, that's a strange response, but fear is in the text. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I don't think it's like fear for their lives, fear. I think it's like, oh my goodness. What did we just hear? And there's a sense of awe and wonder. And I'm sure as they're walking away or moving away from there, their just mind is flooded with all these questions. And I wonder for some of you here today, as you hear all this, you're like, that's a lot to take in, what you're saying. And you might have more questions. And we'd love to talk with you, follow up with you, sit with you, and listen to those questions and talk with you about them. So maybe that's the box you need to check. And then lastly, faith. You heard Dan's story, how Dan put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. He didn't see Jesus the way he sees him now a year or so ago. But maybe today you see Jesus differently as you think about his life and his death, how his death was for you and for all of us and his resurrection, that the tomb is empty and he offers a new way to live. You might say, I want to, I see it differently today. And I want to put my trust in my faith. I want to surrender my life to him and I want to follow him. If that's you, we invite you to check that box and put your name and phone number. We'd love to follow up with you. Bring someone to walk alongside you on this journey. So here's what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And you have these cards. And if you feel like there's something you want to respond to, a way you want to respond, I'm going to encourage you to check the box. If it's appropriate, put your name, contact information. And then up front, we have these baskets. And it's a chance, it's a, it's a simple response, an opportunity for us today to say, God, here's how I'm responding to you inviting me into this story today. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to invite our worship team, and we'll respond. So God, I want to thank you for this text. I want to thank you for Mark writing these things down. Thanks for Peter sharing these things with him to write down. And God, today we put ourselves in it, into the story. We don't stand back as observers, but we are invited into it to say, what will you do? So I pray, give us the courage to respond as it's appropriate. Whether it's to follow in a new way, to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to follow your lead. I want to learn from you. I have questions. I want to put my faith in you. God, would you give us the courage to respond today? And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand.